him preach before, and he's a great guy. It's just I haven't had an opportunity to fully get into the book yet. But he said something that, that kind of caught my attention. He said, who am I to think myself above God's charity? And why would I forsake the riches of God's righteousness for the dung of my own ego? A beggar's kingdom is better than a proud man's delusion. Let me say that again. A beggar's kingdom is better than a proud man's delusion. Strength and weakness. Do you realize that if you've ever been into dating 101 or counseling 101, do you realize that everyone is a set of problems? You know, John Ortberg wrote the book and he said, everybody's normal until you get to know them, right? Everybody's messed up. Everybody has issues. And it's funny because in our marriages or in our relationships, we think, well, if I can only get rid of this problem or this person, I can shift over and everything will be better. And then you realize that you get together with someone else and they have their own set of problems. There are no perfect people. And when you look around your life and think that everybody else's life is so daisies and all happiness, it's not true. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Everybody struggles. Everybody has issues. Everybody is weak in some areas of their life. Now, Paul takes this concept and he builds on it. And it's found, if you would turn with me, before we get to Judges, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's page 807 in the Bibles that were handed to you. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Jesus had talked a little bit about turning the world upside down and talking about servant leadership as we just were able to pray for a young man about. But Paul kind of expounds on it. He says here in 1 Corinthians 1.26, Brothers, speaking to the Christians, think of what you were when you were called. I mean, it wasn't your idea. You were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Clearly, he doesn't have the gift of encouragement. Verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Why? Verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness Holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, he made it a little bit more personal in Corinthians, the second book, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. Paul said about himself to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There was given me a thorn in my flesh. Scholars debate what that was. Was it bad eyesight? Was it an illness? What was it? A messenger of Satan to torment me, he said. So it had to be bad. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. Now, I'm sure that somebody more brilliant than I would look into this and find something a lot more deep. And they'll probably find some Da Vinci Code like kind of reading in there. And they can kind of, well, this is what it means here, here, here. Let me give you what I got. All right. I think it means that you're strong when you're weak because you finally get out of God's way. I think that the reason why you're strong when you're weak is you stop being cocky. 
I think that you're strong when you are weak because God the whole time is saying, may I? And every time you say, hold on, Lord, it's not desperate enough yet. I think that we are strong when we are weak in a very practical fashion. I don't think it's deep. I don't think that it's something that we have to unwind. I think it's very obvious. It's saying, get out of my way. I'm the amazing thing about you. We are strong when we are weak. I am a weak person. You say, Lance, you humble guy, you. Okay, let me make it matter of fact here. Okay. Not only do I sin and have issues and I do stuff like get really mad and chew out my wife and stuff like that. You see what I'm saying? Not only do I do that kind of stuff, but I came from weakness. You understand, I've told you before that I deal with panic disorder, right? But I've been dealing with this since I was seven years old. As a child, I couldn't let my mom stop and go to the grocery store because I was in absolute terror that either she was going to leave and I couldn't go into the store. I mean, I have a million stories about my fearfulness. As a matter of fact, as a young child, I would go into choking fits where I felt like I couldn't breathe. My throat would begin to restrict. And I had now I grew up in a different denomination. and They were praying over me strong, man. It was all they could do, probably not to cast a demon out of me or something. I was sitting there struggling. Nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew it was a panic attack. It was the time before we ever talked about that kind of stuff. And I'm there as a child. They're anointing me with oil, praying over me. I can't even breathe. I'm so freaked out and I can't even handle my own world. That's where I come from. What do I do for a living? Right? I preach in front of a thousand people a weekend. Okay? How is that possible? Because God designs people. It's all God. Did he go out and go, I need to select the most uh, talented, the best, the most sharp, the most courageous, the most... No. He took a little kid who couldn't breathe and he built one. Do you understand? We are average, ordinary people, but we serve an extraordinary God. Therefore, our formula must be everything we got plus his presence. That means something in our own power. No, we cannot do it. And if you doubt, if you fear, if you don't have all the things nailed down, if you wrestle in your life, if you struggle through. Welcome home. God is here to meet you and he has a message for you. We're about to read about one of the most unlikely deliverers, yet one of the most powerful in all Israel's history. Would you turn with me to Judges chapter six, Judges chapter six, verse one. It's page 174 in the Bibles that were handed to you. Fill in the blank in front of you is very simplistic. It is God uses the weak. To demonstrate his strength. Do you understand the more capable you are, the less glory God gets? Do you understand that? Because everyone in the world is just like you and I, and we will always look for a human reasoning as to why it occurred. And as long as they can keep finding a human reason in you, they will never look to Jesus. That's why Paul said, you know what? If that's the case, less of me. Forget that. I'd rather God get all the glory. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. It begins with a familiar phrase. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Big surprise. Remember that big cycle? They were doing really great. 
God was blessing them, so they walked away from him. They started following other gods. They got in trouble with God. They got sold into slavery. They got miserable. They cried out to God. God saved them. They were doing good. They walked away, and it went back into... That's only Bridgeway. That pattern is also found in Judges. I don't know if you knew that. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them in the hands of the Midianites. Who are the Midianites? Well, in our story, those are the bad guys. But where did they come from? You remember Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish nation. And he, the Jews came through a specific wife. Which wife that Abraham had? Sarah. Sarah's had a son, a promised child named Isaac. Okay. But Abraham also had other wives. That's creepy. And out of these other wives, like one of them was called Hagar. Bad choice of names. But anyway, one of them was called Hagar. She had a son named Ishmael, where the Ishmaelites came from, and they were a big problem for the Jews. But he didn't stop there. He also had a concubine, even creepier, named Keturah. Keturah gave him six sons. His fourth son from her was named Midian. That's this. So in other words, the people who are oppressing the Jews are relatives. That doesn't make it real happy. Does that make sense? Now, they always kind of had battles back and forth and they would wrestle about all sorts of things. As a matter of fact, they joined a coalition to try to wipe out the Jews through, if you remember, Balaam, the prophet. He's the Balaam and his donkey. You remember the talking donkey story? That was them. The Midianites were trying to kill the Jews. So no, they didn't get along. Verse 2, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. In other words, it's not just the Midianites, it's the Amalekites. Where'd they come from? Well, if you remember Jacob and Esau, the twins, Esau's son was named Amalek. The Amalekites came from there. As a matter of fact, as the Jews are wandering through the desert... After coming out of Egypt and they were st- they were dying of thirst, God brought water out of a rock. Do you remember that? Right then, the Amalekites swept in and it was the mighty war. Do you remember when Moses had to keep his hands up? Whenever he'd keep his hands up, the Israelites would win. When he put them down, the Amalekites would win. He put them up and as long as he kept them up, he had two buddies support him, Aaron and Hur. And they held up his hands and they won the war. That's the Amalekites. They're still around. And they're battling, they're joining with all these other forces, and they're coming in, and every time Israel would plant food, wait for the harvest, it'd finally come up, they'd think they could feed their families. Start hearing the rumbling. They just move in. Devour everything. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. That's down south. It's a big, huge territory. And did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Ready to make it personal? Why does it always have to be it was so bad they cried out to God for help? Why is it in our lives that it's not till it's horrible... Man, things are terrible. i got to have to pray. Oh, I, things have completely fallen apart. I should involve God. Do you understand that we try to control him in every way, shape, and form, and so we hold him off until we've done everything we can? Oh, I don't want to bother the big guy. He's probably busy. No, that's not really it. You just want to control your world. 
You don't want him to expect anything of you. That's the real issue. And so we try to do this all ourselves. But when it gets horrible, then we involve God. Now, you know how I would act if I was God? <laughs> You're lucky I'm not. I would stop and I would go, no, I'm not helping you. You only want me when you need something. You have used me for millennia. I have no interest in you. Forget you. You got yourself into this. Get yourself out. But what does he say? When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent him a prophet. Okay, now stop. We've seen this pattern happen before. They get into trouble, but this phrase is written different usually. What does it usually say? And they cried out to God and God sent them a deliverer. You see that? But what did he send this time? Prophet? They don't name the guy. It doesn't even matter who he is, just who sent him and what he has to say. They sent him a prophet and they're kind of like, so you're the deliverer, right? And he's like, actually, I'm the prophet. So they look behind him. So is the deliverer like coming? Is he like behind you or what's the? I don't know. I've just been sent by God. All right. Well, what does God want to say? This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God, do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. See, now God's talking my language. What he was saying, in essence, was, oh, the deliverer's on his way. I've heard you, but we need to talk before he gets here. If I just keep helping you out and I just lift you out of everything, you're clearly not learning here. You understand? We need to talk. No, I'm not just going to play Dr. Spock and pretend nothing's wrong. No, something's wrong. You're you're violating our covenant. All I asked, I took you out of the superpower. You were a nobody. You were in bondage for over 400 years. I did the impossible for you. And all I ask is that it would just be you and me. But it's not like that, is it? No, you want to fly, flit around and follow any other God that you want. I just want you to know I will deliver you. He's coming. But you've hurt me. And it's not okay. And you say, wow, was he just like a mean dad where he just slams you and then says, you deal with it? What's the next verse? The angel of the Lord came. He was right there. Now, who's the angel of the Lord? I would suggest to you it's Jesus, second person of the Trinity. You know, he didn't just show up for Christmas, right? Okay, good. He was around since before the dawn of time. He wasn't retired. He wasn't hanging out. He was moving and doing things. Now, you'd say, well, why? It says the angel of the Lord. Why not just say Jesus? Well, the angel of the Lord is not just any angel. This angel actually receives worship. No angels are allowed to do that. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, John tried to worship an angel and got busted for it. Angels won't receive worship, but God will. Not only that, but he speaks as God, not for God, as God. And also when people see him, they say, I've seen the face of God. So we know this is no ordinary angel. I would suggest to you it is a pre-incarnate Christ. So sure enough, God himself shows up in the scenario, meaning you've disobeyed me, you've sinned, but I'm still coming. And he shows up in their life. What incredible grace. And he sat down under the oak in, looks like Oprah, doesn't it? Ah, you didn't know she was in the Bible. It's actually Ophra. He sat down under the oak in Ophra that belonged to Joash, the Abbey Israelite. Now, Joash is Gideon's dad. Joash, his name sounds Jewish and he is Jewish, but he's an idolater. 
He was following Baal, the pagan gods. So Gideon comes from a household of idolatry. You say, well, I didn't have a very good upbringing. Either did Gideon. Join the crowd. Where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Okay, what is threshing wheat? Real quick lesson on customs and stuff of the Bible. You thresh wheat by grabbing all the wheat out of the fields, throwing it on a big open space that's really hard, all right? It's kind of like concrete. Well, it would be more stone at that time. You throw all the wheat down there, and then you crush it to try to separate the bad stuff from the good stuff. You would run a cart over it, or you'd have ox walk over it, or you would step on it and crush it. You would do it in a big area, in a threshing floor. What's he doing in a wine press? Wine press... You remember I Love Lucy where she was stomping the grapes? You remember that whole thing? Okay, very similar concept. You'd have a stone vat, which maybe two or three people could be in at one time. You'd crush it a little bit lower in elevation from you was another vat. So when you'd squeeze the grapes, the juice would run down and they would make wine. So what in the world is he doing threshing wheat in a wine press? Well, you remember every time they had food, somebody would come and steal it. So he's trying to be covert. So he's hiding everything. Nobody can see inside the walls. They don't know what's going on. He threshes out his wheat and he can feed the family. It is an act of wisdom, but it is an act of cowardice. Do you understand? This is our deliverer. His name means chopper or hacker or cutter down tree guy. Okay. That's very significant with what God asked him to do next. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, we can read this one of two ways. Either we read this in the sarcastic glance fashion, which is, hey, little guy trying to hide from everybody else. You're a mighty warrior. Okay, no, that's probably not what God was doing. I think this is a lot more like how God talked to Peter and he called him a rock way before he was a rock. Does that make sense? He was breathing identity into him. He was saying, you will be my mighty warrior. When clearly he was not. It was an embarrassment, as a matter of fact. But, sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? How many times do you ask that question? But you think your circumstances dictate whether God's in your life or not? Well, the Bible says that I will be blessed and I will be healthy and wealthy and blah, 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 blah. Really? Job? And that's said. Gideon went on, where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. How funny is that when God's standing right in front of you? I'm sorry, I went where? (laughs) That's funny. Right here. Still here. The Lord turned to him and said, how dare you, you little jerk? No, he didn't say that. Because that's what a lot of us would have said to our kids, right? Right. He said, patiently, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? What did he tell him? What was our formula? Use your strength, what you've got. We'll mix it with my presence and we have victory. But God, I'm not all this. Go with what you have. Mix it with my presence and you have more than enough. So you'd go, wow, God just talked to Gideon, told him that he would be with him. He must be all pumped up, right? Mm, No, verse 15, just like Moses. But Lord, Gideon said, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. 
Sounds like excuses to me, doesn't it? Good thing we don't use excuses when God calls us. What excuses you got? Moses used the whole, I can't speak right. Remember that one? Oh, use somebody else. And God got mad. He's like, stop telling me who I need to use. You're my man. You're my woman. Go now. So God didn't blast him again. Look at verse 16. More patience. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. In other words, if I'm with you, we have nothing to worry about. You will win. Gideon replied, if now I found favor in your eyes, give me a sign. It's really you talking to me. Is this getting ridiculous? Okay, Gideon, how about this? It's me. Right here. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And this is great. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Okay, so here we got God waiting. Looking at his watch. Whatever, kid. Okay, what do you need to do? All right. You're going to make me lunch. That's nice. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the yoke. You know how long that took? Average time, one hour. whole time, Jesus is out there waiting. How patient is that? How you doing in there, Gideon? Fine! He's just crashing pots and pans, you know. Studies would suggest that you cook goat by roasting it and putting on little kebabs. He's making little sheep kebabs in there, and he's trying to fix it. And he brings out an ephah of flour bread. You know how much that is? Enough for a family to eat for four days. <laughs> he's like, a lot of bread. Thanks, Gideon. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and place them on this rock and pour out the broth. What's he doing? Gideon made him lunch. It's now been turned into a... Sacrifice. Do you understand that that's altar language? Here's a rock. Put the sacrifice on it. Pour out the broth. All we need is fire. Interesting. Gideon did so. Verse 21. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Just like that. He said, you want a sign, kid? How about this? He's gone. Wow. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. To a Jew, that means you die. So God pops back in. Peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. <laughs> Bye-bye now. <laughs> you know, he takes off. <laughs> Sorry, I disappeared like that. <laughs> I didn't even plan that. That was kind of improv. Okay, great. Verse 24. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. And to this day, it stands in opera of the Abiezrites. That same night, now God is about to warm him up. He's about to put him on a trial run. Just like before David fought Goliath, he had to fight a bear and a lion. He was warming them up to the calling that he was about to receive as deliverer of Israel. And he said, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Why the second bull? Well, some scholars believe that the first bull may have already been prepared for Baal the pagan God, and God was taking the second one. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Meaning his own dad set up a pagan temple of sorts for the whole town to worship. Good job, dad. Nice role modeling. Idolater. Polygamist. Polygamist. 
Polytheist is what I was trying to say. Sorry. Don't need to mix two other concepts. Verse 26. Tear it down and build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Is that your mighty warrior? God himself just showed up, gave you all the instructions, did a mighty miracle. Poof, he's gone. He comes back, gives you peace, and you're still freaked out. This is our deliverer. Does he sound a little bit more like us? Yeah. There's no superheroes in the Bible. There's just ordinary average men and women. Then what? In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They were inflamed. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. So somebody squealed. The men of the town demanded of Joash, the dad, bring out your son. He must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Uh Uh-oh. Showdown at the doorway. Gideon's inside. Dad's at the front door. Pagan dad. What's dad going to do? They're demanding that his son, his son just took his stuff, took his bull, took his gods, burned everything up in town, made his dad an embarrassment to everybody. How's dad going to handle this? But Joash, the dad, replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? What, are you going to save him? Whoever fights for him will be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. Finally, Dad does something right. He steps in and defends and says, wait a second, I thought we were talking about a god. We're all defending a god? That's pretty embarrassing. Why do we have to defend a god? He can defend himself. Good job, Dad. So that day they called Gideon Jerob Baal, meaning let Baal contend with him, let Baal fight with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. That means it's wartime. Now it's all heating up. God had prepped him just for this time. All the mighty forces against him were assembling. It looked like the Jews were going to get annihilated. Now what's going to happen? The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. He's empowered. He's strengthened. And he blew a trumpet and he summoned the Abizrites to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh calling them to arms and into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. So they too went up to meet him. Now he sounds like a warrior. Now he's getting people pumped up. Come on, guys, we got to go do this. We got to go to war. Our God will let us survive. Our God will give us victory. And he's blowing his trumpet and he's pumped up. And you think, man, everything's going great for this guy. Do you understand that sometimes the scared kids may well carry some of their fear into their adulthood? And even when God is on you, sometimes it shows up. Look what happens in verse 36. Gideon is still in doubt. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised. He's doubting God's faithfulness. Are you kidding me? 
God told you personally. Ah, don't we doubt his word? Yeah. Look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and um, let's see, all the ground is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. What do you think God could have said? Sometimes what do dads say? Boy, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Are you kidding me? I'm God. You're not. Don't put me to a test. Don't get in my face. I will do what I want to do. What's the next phrase? And that is what happened. Just like that. How patient is our God? How kind is our God? He's even playing little kid games. All right, boy, if that's what you need, let's do it. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. God didn't want there to be any mistake. But as you know, you wonder, okay, did I look at that wrong? I mean, maybe it was just a rainy night. I mean, what about... Verse 39, then Gideon said to God, okay, don't be angry with me. Let me make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. Did God get mad? Verse 40, that night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. That is our God. Listen to me. Everyone in this room, myself, and anyone outside of this room are only average, ordinary men and women. If you are waiting to think that God's going to choose you or select you because you're stunning, you're mistaken. He only uses broken, flawed individuals. That's the only kind he has access to. Because that's what we did with what he gave us. And yet he said, your effort, whatever you got to bring me, I will honor that and I will mix it with my presence. And I'm all that you need. And so whoever you are, if you wrestle with the doubt of saying, I don't even know if I'm a Christian sometimes. God might whisper your name. If you worry and say, I've never done anything big for God. There's no possible way he's going to whisper my name. He might be calling you. If you say, well, I'm, I'm weak. I mean, I got all these issues. I got this hang up and this hang up and this hang up. Welcome to the club. Because that's the only type of people he uses. If you are insecure, just know that God is secure. If you have no confidence in who you are, God has confidence in who he is. If you feel like your whole world is hopeless and worthless. God has said that you're worth a son dying for. Do you understand how your God feels about you? Do you understand that if you are being called to something, there is nothing standing in your way except you? And the question is, will you be an open vessel and allow him to use you? Because if you do, ordinary plus extraordinary God means impossible is possible. Amen? Amen. Mark, would you bring the team up as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for an encouragement that, Lord, even as broken as we are, you love us. As much as we play these little children's games and we keep pushing you and pushing you, you are so patient. 
and so kind and so compassionate and so loving and so full of grace. May we be like you. May we allow that grace and that peace to melt into our hearts and allow us to see that we too may be used. We too may be called warts and all. And that even though we're ordinary, you see great things that you can do with us in your hands. And may you be praised and glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, would you please stand? Let's close our time together by singing, How Great Is Our God.